so, as I say, keyhole surgery pioneers. My name is Roger Kneebone. I'm the Gresham College visiting lecturer, a visiting professor in medical education, and I'm professor of surgical education and engagement science at Imperial College London. And at Imperial, I, I lead two centres. One of them is a centre for engagement and simulation science, and the other is a collaborative centre between the Royal College of Music and Imperial College, which I lead jointly with my friend and colleague Aaron Williamson, who's in the audience today. And over the next hour or so, I'm going to do two things. The first is to spend perhaps half an hour uh, setting the scene about keyhole surgery and the, um, the, the convulsive changes that that's brought to the surgical landscape over the last 20 or 30 years. And then after that, I'm going to invite to join me on the platform two of those keyhole surgery pioneers for a conversation which will take the rest of the lecture. So if you have your gallbladder removed, if you've had your gallbladder removed or you're about to, these days, almost certainly, it will be done like this. It will be done by keyhole surgery. So for those of you who are not familiar with this approach, um, the surgical team will put a tiny, tiny camera through a small incision, uh, probably just underneath your tummy button, um, and then maybe a couple of other tiny punctures in your abdominal wall, and they'll feed instruments into your, uh, into your abdominal cavity, and they'll, they'll see what they're doing through a magnified, brightly lit image that we can see over there on the left of the picture. And so the surgical team are not looking directly at your organs, they're looking indirectly through optical instruments. And then they will carry out the procedure probably in no more than 20 or 30 minutes using rigid instruments. It's a rather peculiar environment in a way. Often the light is strange to allow people to get the best possible view of the screens. And I'm just going to give you a glimpse of the kind of thing that you might see if you were in the operating theatre. So we've got an operating team here, we've got the surgeon there, she's looking at a, at a screen, her assistant at another screen, the scrub nurse over there, he's providing the instruments, and over there on the left you can see the anaesthetist. And it would look something like this. But although this kind of surgery seems completely routine now, it hasn't always been like that. And so in this lecture, I'm going to track the process by which something arrives on the landscape, and it's entirely new. Nobody's seen anything like it before. But then surprisingly quickly, it becomes normal. It just becomes part of how things are. And then surprisingly quickly after that, very often, it becomes old because it's supplanted, superseded by what comes after it. And so in the course of this talk, I'm going, to, I'm going to look at that trajectory, that process by which new approaches, new technologies, new ways of doing surgery go through this, this cycle. So a lot has happened in the course of my surgical career. So in the 40 years or so since I qualified in, in 1977, there have been all kinds of convulsive changes. Of course there have. And in the middle in the 1980s particularly, there was the beginnings of a, a fascinating time of enormous technological change and enormous social change. And I'm going to explore how those two elements interacted. 
So let me take you back to when I was training as a, as a surgeon. Here I am over there on the, on the right in my earlier days um, in the 1980s, carrying out an operation, in this case a trauma surgery operation in, in southern Africa, where I was at that time. Uh, and you can see um, that I'm looking down directly into the abdominal cavity of the patient I'm operating on. Patients under general anaesthetic, I've made an incision and I can see directly what it is that I'm going to do. And this is a form of surgery that was, that was universal at the time. And so now I'm going to just show you a brief glimpse of a reenactment. My colleagues and I did a simulation of that kind of operation, the sort of thing you'd have seen in any hospital in the 1980s. And you can see that round about the surgical team, we've got the surgeon there. Uh, opposite him is the scrub nurse, almost always a, a woman at that time in the background, um, the anaesthetist, more often than not a man, though by no means always. And around about, we've got members of the public who are coming to see what that sort of operation was like. And so you can, you can see the kind of thing that was happening, and it would be like that for the operation, the very commonly performed operation of removing the gallbladder. In technical terminology, cholecystectomy. So... A while ago, I started thinking about what, what was going on at that time. What kind of surgery were we looking at? And I'm going to show you a brief clip of an educational video that lasted half an hour, but I'm just going to show you a few seconds, of this operation produced as an educational tool for medical students by Professor Harold Ellis, who at the time was the Professor of Surgery at the Westminster Hospital. He's now retired from clinical practice, very active as an anatomist uh, at Guy's, but we'll see him now explaining uh, the beginnings of this operation. I'm going to demonstrate in this presentation a cholecystectomy on a middle-aged lady with multiple gallstones. The peritoneum opened over the duct system, carefully dissected away, and this is helped by a Leahy swab, a small swab held in an artery forceps. Push away the tissues. Here we are. So there's just a glimpse of the beginning of this operation. Now, at the time, as I say, this was the absolutely standard way of doing this procedure, the only way, really. That's how I learned to do it. That's how all the surgeons learned to do it. And when I was learning to do it, it seemed to me that it had always been like that, that gallbladders had always been removed in that way. And in a sense, for a very long time, they had. The film I've just shown you was filmed in the mid-1980s. And here's one from the Wellcome Collections um, archive, of the same operation being carried out 40 years earlier in the 1920s by Mortimer Wolfe. And, uh, and when we see what Mortimer Wolfe is, is doing, it's almost indistinguishable from the operation that Harold Ellis was doing 40 years later. We can see very similar stages of the operation, very similar procedures that they're, that they're doing. And this was based on a way of looking at the body that involved making a hole in somebody and seeing with your own eyes what was there. And in order to, to get a sense not only of the textbook descriptions of those operations, but what people were actually doing at the time, I, I wanted a while ago to start to think about ways of documenting what was going on, to get at what people were actually doing, rather than those descriptions of what they were doing that really only make sense to insiders, to people who already know what the language means. 
Um, so when I started doing this a few, a few years ago, first of all, I got in touch with Professor Ellis, much older now than, than he was when you first saw him there. Um, and, uh, and he gave me the perspective of what it was as a surgeon, but I wanted to expand that and get some other perspectives too. So I, I started talking, first of all, to Sir Barry Jackson, who uh, re not, a, not, not, not long before that had been the president of the Royal College of Surgeons of England, an immensely experienced surgeon like, like Harold Ellis, who'd done hundreds, if not thousands, of these operations. And I asked him to explain to me what he did and to tell me, to take, him, to take me back to that time when he would go into the operating theatre and do this operation that was so deeply ingrained he could do it more or less in his sleep. And here's what he said. Uh, now, I would be... Right. Would you... uh, no, just hang on. Uh, I was... I stood on the other side. I stood on the patient's left. So that's the patient's, I, that's the patient's, patient's head, head there. there. I would be standing this side and and make the incision. Yes, that's right. Subcost. So, so I, I think I think we can we get the sense here that that he's finding it difficult actually to visualise what he did. It's become so automatic that he can't even he has to think through which side of the patient he was standing on, whereabouts in the operating theatre he was, all those things that, that are absolutely second nature, he wasn't used to putting into words. So when I asked him, he, he found it quite difficult to say because he had to cast his memory back. In fact, he, he ended up drawing, drawing little diagrams of where he was standing and where the patient was lying, that sort of thing. And so I, I started to, to realise that there was a, a whole body of, of sort of unarticulated knowledge that experts had but, but couldn't always bring out into view. And when they were explaining to people uh, who were not so expert, it became a problem. Uh. I was also very fortunate in getting in touch with a number of other members. First of all, of Harold Ellis's team. This is Professor Stanley Feldman, who died several years ago. Very eminent anaesthetist, professor of anaesthetics at the, well at the Westminster Hospital. Uh, and he and uh, Professor Ellis had walked, worked together for many, many years. And this is Mary Neeland, their um, theatre sister, senior theatre sister, who again worked as part of their team together for a very long time. And I worked with them to start unlocking some of the stories they had about how they used to work at that time. And with my colleagues in my research group, I came up with the idea of what I called simulation-based reenactment, wondering whether we could get more information from bringing people together to do things than just from talking to them alone, as I had with Sir Barry Jackson. And I was very fortunate at that time because um, in the London Science Museum, some of you may remember it, in the Welcome Galleries, now recently dismantled to make way for their new medical galleries, um, there, was, uh, th there was this full-size replica of a 1980s operating theatre. It had been put up in 1983, and by the time I started working there in the mid-2000s, it hadn't changed at all. Um, life-size replica, as I say, of a surgical team, in this case doing open-heart surgery, in a way that when it was put up was the very latest thing you could possibly imagine. Um, rather tentatively, I asked the Science Museum staff, particularly their deputy director, Heather Mayfield, if we could possibly do something in this space, expecting her to say no. And she said, of course, that would be fine. And so the Science Museum allowed us to take out quite a lot of this um, heart surgery equipment and bring in um, items from their reserve collection 
at Blythe House in Olympia to create a sense of what surgery would have been like in the early or mid-1980s. And we brought together that team of people, Harold Ellis on the left, Stanley Feldman at the top on the right, and Mary Nealon down there at the bottom, to create, to recreate a sense of what it was like to be doing an operation in conjunction with colleagues at that time. So Professor Feldman here with the kind of anaesthetic machine that he would have been using, fairly rudimentary by current day standards, but, but standard for the time. Um, a group of people um, working together with students, with observers, and Mary Neeland, the scrub nurse, laying out her instruments so that everything was there when she needed it. And I'm going to show you a very brief clip now of one of the pieces of film that we took. It was, it was filmed amongst many of these others that I'm going to show you by Dr. Paul Craddock, who's here in the audience today, a filmmaker, videographer, and cultural historian. And he captured a number of episodes, which I think were most illuminating. This one, we're going to have a look at a simulated gallbladder operation. Um, it's actually an animal gallbladder, but the principle is very similar. And here we join the surgical team. In a minute, we'll be seeing Professor Harold Ellis in the middle. Um, we'll, be, we'll be seeing him in the middle. And on the left of the screen, as you look at it, you'll see Sister Neeland. And what I'd like you to do is look at the space between the two of them. Well, I'll tell you if you take that. And now this is interesting. And in this case, so, the artery is running with it. In so we're man, looking over the here. artery is separate. Well, in mankind, men and women, the artery runs separate from it. But here you can see, I just have a scissor. You can see that the cystic artery is running along there. So if you noticed, Professor Ellis held out his hand and then Sister Neeland it turned out, had already got ready the instrument that she knew he was going to need. And she put it into his hand. And if you slow down the tape, you find something even more interesting because she, he puts out his hand, she puts a pair of scissors into it, he withdraws his hand, and only after he's withdrawn his hand does he say, scissors, please, sister. So it's already happened. And so... Here is a group of people who worked together for many years but who hadn't been in an operating theatre or even spent much time with one another professionally at all for over 20 years, who immediately click back into a way of collaborative working that neither, none of them was aware of at the time. They were all astonished when they saw this video and, and saw for themselves the kind of wordless communication that had been taking place. So that was, that was the sort of standard approach to... Um, to removing the gallbladder. Well, but although it seemed as if it had been like that forever, things were about to change, and they were about to change radically. So I mentioned the, the, the sort of intervening period between when I qualified as a doctor in 1977 and where we are now, and, and the idea that there were big technical and social developments. I think the technical ones were particularly powerful at that time because they, they brought about a change from thinking of the body in terms of the organs that you could see if you opened somebody up to completely different ways of visualising human anatomy that didn't rely on dissection alone but that, that used extraordinarily powerful technologies of imaging. So here's a, um, a slice through the body um, and you can see that there's the liver there, there are the kidneys on either side. It's a longitudinal section, the backbone in the middle. You can see extraordinary amounts of detail. But it wasn't only looking at static images like this, it was procedures for carrying out 
um, interventions using radiology. So here's a the kind of thing you, you would certainly see now and was beginning to happen then when a flexible wire is being introduced into this patient's artery, in this case in, in, in their groin, under uh, x-ray control. And this, uh, this machine round here is shining uh, x-rays through the patient and then... Um, showing an image, and you can see that at the top right of the picture there, there's a, a black line which is one of these flexible wires or catheters going through, um, going through a blood vessel. We can't see the blood vessel, we can't see the organs, we see shadowy shapes of bones, we, we see a, a, a sort of indirect picture of what's going on. But these technologies allowed a completely different approach to the inside of the body. Which brings us on to the beginning of beginnings of what eventually became called keyhole surgery. And now I want to introduce a pivotal figure who in many ways has been unjustly overlooked, I think, in, in, in terms of the history of keyhole surgery. But Mr. John Wickham, um, who, who died two years ago, almost, almost to the day, at the age of 90, uh, was, was really a towering figure. I'm happy to say that his widow, Anne, is in the, in the audience today. And, and John Wickham and his colleagues were extraordinarily generous with their time and helpful to me over the last few years in building up a picture of what was actually going on at that, that, that pivotal time in the mid to late 1980s, the beginning of the 90s. So Mr Wickham up there on the top left, this is Tony Raybould, this theatre sister he worked with uh, for many, many years, and then a number of members of his team down here on the bottom. And when Mr Wickham was starting his career, or for, for, for perhaps half of his career, as a urologist who specialised in stone disease, stones in the kidney, the bladder, the kind of operation he had to do uh, involved making a large incision in somebody and then finding your way down to the kidney or the ureter and then making a hole in that and taking out the stone. And, and this is the sort of thing that it... it, it But ever since the beginning, Mr Wickham told me, he'd had this vision that it shouldn't be necessary to make a huge hole to take out a tiny stone. It shouldn't be necessary to inflict more damage by the process of getting to where you wanted to go than, than you did with the, for the procedure itself. There should be another way of doing things. And for a long time, he'd been, he'd been trying to, to come up with ideas of how to improve things. Um, and one of his pivotal contributions to me was reframing not only the technical aspects of surgery, but what it was to work with other people. At that time, it was traditional for uh, surgeons to, 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 to lead surgical teams, often in quite a hierarchical way. And John Wickham reframed that by bringing together, on equal terms, members of the operative team who hadn't previously been there, the scrub nurses, of course they'd been there, but uh, an interventional radiologist and instrument manufacturers, um, people who were not normally to be seen in an operating theatre. So here's a glimpse um, of... Uh, Dr. Mike Kellett, who will be joining us on the platform in a, in a little while, interventional radiologist, and this is a clip from a panorama programme at the time where he's showing a procedure that was very new at the time. He's putting in a tiny needle into somebody's uh, side and then under X-ray control, and now he's putting in a series of, in of, of tubes of increasing diameter so that he can, he can make a hole that in, in the end, a channel, that in the end is big enough to reach in and remove a stone, a procedure called percutaneous nephrolithotomy, taking out a stone from the kidney through the skin.
And when I started talking to, to, uh, to John Wickham and his colleagues, it turned out that, um, that they had a lot, of, uh, a lot of instruments that they'd been developing at the time. John Wickham's basement was full, he told me, of instruments that he had worked on, uh, many of which he'd kept in his possession. I said that this was an interesting time of, of, of rapid change, and it was a time of, 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 uh, of media interest too. So here's just a very brief clip of, uh, of, of a, a television interview with Mr. Wickham from the time. Wide open and put your hands in to get the, the stones out. Uh, patients can get away with a much less damaging procedure. They're less time in hospital. They can get back to work quicker. And I think if it can be done for one area of surgery, this can be easily applied to other areas of surgery. It's a question of will. But the will depends on... So, so there, was, there was John Wickham giving a, a, a vision of what might happen, not just a new technique, but, but how it might bring about widespread change. So that was Mr. Wickham at the time. You can see that he's, uh, for those of you who are, who are uh, interested in medical technology, you can see that he's looking directly through the instrument he's using. It's an early form of, of laparoscope. Uh, at this stage, the technology hasn't got to the stage of being able to project it on a, on a screen. He's looking directly down this instrument. Um, and 20 years later, 30 years later, we invited him to come back again. And as we'd done with Professor Ellis and his team, to reenact that procedure. So we're going to join them for just a few moments at the Science Museum once again in that operating theatre where Mr Wickham and Dr Kellett and um, many other members of the team are re-enacting that early stage of removing a, a, a kidney stone through a laparoscope. We made, I told them to get the wires too thin. There we go. And look again at the seam. Back again. And again. Swing back. A little bit further in. So this has all happened very quickly. I said I qualified in 1977. Uh, I was training as a surgeon in the early 1980s. This was beginning to happen in the mid-1980s. And by 1987, um, John Wickham wrote a, an editorial in the British Medical Journal, a very well-known medical journal with a high circulation, um, in which he was talking about the new surgery. And in 1987, uh, at the end of his article, he wrote this. He said, it seems extraordinary that general surgeons have not yet seized upon the operative potential of the laparoscope. Prophetic words, because within just a couple of years, they most certainly had. They had definitely seized on the operative potential of the laparoscope, and people were trying all kinds of things out. Some of them worked better than others. And one of the interesting things that I came to realise as part of this project was that there are an awful lot of things at a time of change like this that people try out and they don't work. Um, I'm thinking of them in terms of, of, of dead ends and blind alleys, things that, that may well have been very useful at the time, but were rapidly superseded by something even better that came on. Or they might be ideas that people tried out and they just didn't work very well, or they didn't go where the people hoped they would do. But the interesting thing about these, um, these, these experimental or um, exploratory ideas is that, as in so many fields, history is 
written by the victor. And these, 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 these approaches get kind of written out of the documentary record. There's very little about them anywhere. Some of them weren't written up at all because things changed so quickly that they were superseded in a matter of months. Some of them were written up, but those papers have been more or less forgotten. Um, and some of them, I think, were just swept along by the tide of events. And one of those ones that I found particularly interesting was, was the procedure of laparoscopic cholecystotomy. So taking out the gallbladder is called cholecystectomy. But cholecystotomy is opening up the gallbladder and taking out the stones, but then leaving the gallbladder where it was. And there was a time in about 1989-1990 when John Wickham and a couple of his colleagues explored the idea of laparoscopic cholecystotomy because it had not yet been shown that, that it was safe and possible to remove the whole gallbladder through the laparoscope, through the keyhole surgery approach. Now, of course, in many ways, removing the whole gallbladder is a, is a better thing to do because then there's no possibility of gallstones coming back. Um, and so... Over the course of a year or so, um, John Wickham in the middle there with Mike Kellett, who will be joining us, and uh, Mr. Chris Russell, uh, a, a consultant hep hepatobiliary surgeon who, who, whose field was, was gallbladders, amongst other things, um, worked together to do, I think, perhaps 100, perhaps 120 cases of laparoscopic cholecystotomy, all highly successful. The patients did very well. Um, but very soon after that, it was shown in France that you could take out the whole gallbladder. And this whole procedure would have disappeared from view almost completely if um, we hadn't had a conversation. When they came together and we reenacted that operation in the Science Museum again and documented the conversations that came out, the conversations that had been prompted by inviting these very experienced people to come together and do the procedure again. So there we are with, with, with the early days of, um, of keyhole surgery. And it seems to me that this is a process that didn't just happen then, at the late, 18s, late 1980s, early 1990s, leading on five or ten years later to keyhole surgery being almost universal and now having become almost old hat. But that process is it's going on as we speak. Um, one of the next ones to come along was, was robotic surgery. This is the first generation of surgical, um, surgical robots doing robot-assisted surgery, the da Vinci um, robot. Uh, involved a, a, a lot of kit. Um, and here is the first example that was brought into the, into the UK in um, 2000 when I was in the operating theatre when Professor Lord Aradazi carried out the UK's first robot-assisted laparoscopic cholecystectomy. But I was also there three years ago when that da Vinci robot um, became part of the Science Museum's collection um, and had its last outing. Um, and, and, and there, in the course of only 17 years, something that was, that was unimaginably advanced, that seemed like science fiction at the time, went through that stage of having become, uh, moving from new to becoming normal and, and now although robotic surgery itself, of course, continues to, to develop, um, now becoming almost old. And I think it's, it's interesting to think about the connection between keyhole surgery and robotic surgery because Mr Wickham, after he had uh, had that, that pivotal effect in, in bringing in keyhole surgery and, and developing that across many branches of surgery, he too continued to innovate. He developed many approaches that underpin the current work that's going on in robotic surgery. So, um, 
Mr. Wickham over there in, um, in a conversation I had a couple of years ago. So from right to left, we've got, uh, we've got Dr. Mike Kellett, we've got Mr. John Wickham, we've got Mr. Stuart Greengrass, there I am on the left, talking about some of these things. But I was very keen that it shouldn't just be talk, and I'm very happy to say that before he died, John Wickham not only wrote and completed, but saw the publication of an open and shut case, his autobiography, which... which in which he describes many of these events that I've just been talking to you today. It's well worth reading, it's beautifully written, and it gives a, a, a fascinating insight into the turbulent events of those times. So before we uh, go on to the next part of the lecture, I just want to make some acknowledgements. Um, Abigail Wood, Sally Frampton and Harriet Palfreyman are all historians who uh, worked closely with me in documenting and making sense of the events that I've just been describing. Heather Mayfield at the time was the deputy director of the Science Museum and I owe a great, great debt of gratitude to her personally and also to the museum and all the many people there who made this simulation-based reenactment possible. And finally, as I mentioned a little earlier to Dr. Paul Craddock, who's sitting in the front, who uh, has been instrumental in, in helping to capture on video and film and audio many of, those, uh, many of those aspects of surgery which are impossible to put into words alone. So it's a great pleasure now to introduce um, my two eminent guests, Dr. Mike Kellett, interventional radiologist, Mr. Stuart Greengrass, uh, surgical instrument designer and manufacturer. And so if we could have the, uh, the screen off and the lights up, I'll invite them to come and join me on the stage. So we, we could have the screen up if, if, if necessary. So, gentlemen... So, so what I thought we could we could do is to explore with you both some of the things that I've been um, that I've been sketching with 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 this talk. But before I do, can I just get you to to say a word or two about yourselves to introduce yourselves, Mike? Hello, I'm a radiologist trained in Bart's, and I came interested in urology actually through John Wickham originally. And my first consultant job was at the Three P's, at St Peter's, St Paul's, and Phillips Hospitals. In Covent Garden, they're closed now, but they were known as the, lovingly, as the three P's, or the pissing apostles, as part of urology. Very and graphic. Mm. I, my consultant job started in 77, and in, I'd done a, my first needle nephrostomy, that's putting a tube into the kidney, to drain and obstruct the kidney. I did that first in 78. And then John Wickham said, that's a track into the kidney, make it bigger, and let's get it stone out. <laughs> that's what we did. So for people who, who, who are not familiar with the, with the medical terminology, you were a radiologist, which, I mean, for a long time I thought radiologists sort of sat in basements and looked at x-rays. Um, but, but it's not like that at all, is it? It's, it's changed amazingly over the time I was training, and after training even more so. The acceleration and change was amazing. So I started looking at chest x-rays, bones, intravenous urograms, which is kidney x-rays, and then suddenly along came ultrasound, and then came CT scanning, and then MRI scanning, and it's just it developed so amazingly that instead of just sitting in the dark room, we're joining in now with the team. And, and so you weren't just looking at things, you were actually doing things. You were steering wires and, yes. and, and all kinds of things, and we'll come on to that in a moment. Can I just check? I think your microphone might have slipped. I'll just move that slightly. 
over there, if that's okay. Um, so, Stuart, yours is a different area of expertise. T tell us about yourself. Uh, well, I, I joined a company called KeyMed in uh, 1973 as a junior engineer. Um, it became part of the Olympus Company in 1978. Um, and I had a, uh, happened to be in the right place at the right time. Um, because I got involved with technology development. Um, initially in flexible endoscopy, so colonoscopy, duodenoscopy, mm. um, developed onto interventional procedures. And then um, I came across John Wickham because I got interested in rigid endoscopy, mm. primarily through laparoscopy and neurology. Um, so, so rigid endoscopy is, is these sort of steel tubes that as opposed to flexible moving ones, is that right? The basic principle, the flexible endoscope generally follows the natural path of the anatomy. The rigid instrument tends to straighten the anatomy over the top of the, of, of the device. Um, and I could see a synergy between the rigid and endoscopy fields, and I could see applications for, for both. Um, and some of the technologies that we were developing could be shared between the... The, uh, the, the instrument uses. So, so, but but you're, you you haven't got a medical background then. Is yours an engineering background? Or, That's right. Yeah. Right. So so you were you were kind of bringing together two different ways of looking at things. Where you were an engineering one and a and a medical one. Well, I, um, one of my enthusiasms was was finding out a little bit more about how the instruments could be used. Because as you were saying earlier on, um, the the people who were using the physicians and surgeons who were using our equipment could tell me what they wanted to do but they couldn't tell me how they wanted to do it and th th I developed that kind of I suppose skill in in interpreting um, the demands into a, uh, a specification. Oh, so you were having to make sense of what was the medical problem they were trying to solve and then come up with an engineering problem that solved it? Uh, absolutely and in, in doing that I had to understand more about what was actually going on in the in the operational field, if you like. And so we're 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 talking here about about procedures that Mr. Wickham particularly would be doing with the instruments that you made. Yes, yeah, and he he was he he was one of a small number of folk that I worked with who asked the sort of unaskable questions, the questions I'd never been asked before, um, and that's why I worked with. John Wickham, I mean, he's a delightful personality, very easy to get on with, but he would ask the awkward question, um, <laughs> like, why are your instruments so long? You know, why do you do endoscopic surgery like you're driving a Harley Davidson? Or why is the hole so big? Or why do you have, a, why don't you use a zoom optical system? All sorts of radical questions which were immensely stimulating. Yeah, because I guess those are the questions that make you that make you challenge your assumptions and 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 think things through in a different way. Absolutely, and I, I had this fortunate position where I quite often I think, well, we could use that from there, or you know, we could swap the technologies around. And, and Mike, I know one of your one of your great skills was being able to. I mean, people used to say that you could get a needle almost anywhere uh, <laughs> under X-ray or ultrasound control, or something like that. Under both, yes. Yes. So, so, so say a little bit about that, because for people who are not familiar with this world, you, you've got a very complex 
sort of set of organs in the in the body, haven't you? And 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 yet you're looking at these images, which are mostly two-dimensional, and and getting a needle or something into exactly the right place. Well, it's 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 angle and depth or orientation, and I was using that first with a C-arm image intensifier, and turning that around the patient, exactly as though my head would be going around in an open operation. Oh, I see. So you're looking from different points of view. Appreciate how deeply the needle was going. Mm. But then you must have been able to sort of put that together in your head as a uh, a sense of where where that that patient's it took organ. time. It took I'm sure time. it did. Yes. I'm sure it did. Because I mean, some of these organs were 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 sort of they'd move out of the way. I, I imagine the gallbladder, well, particularly the gallbladder, was very difficult to get into. You had to stab it sharply because it was quite mobile. Was it? Yeah. So so how did you develop these? these skills? Was Repeatedly. it just through practice? John, John kept saying, do another one, do another one. <laughs> it was incredible working with John, it really was. So, so say a little bit about, about working with him, because I mean, talking to you all, I get this sense of a, a very unusual sort of professional grouping of, of people with very different kinds of expertise working on equal terms to, to, to address problems collaboratively. But you were there and doing it. What, what was it like? Well, he never criticised at all what I was doing. So in that way, I could get up and take my own time doing it. And if I was slow, he'd fall asleep in the corner or whatever until I got the track in. Yeah. Uh, and in the early days, that happened quite often. And of course, the first case we did, we were dilating the track over several days. And finally, he said, look, let's try and do one to go, one stage operation. So when you say doing it over several days? Well, we dilate the track, then leave a tube in the kidney, leave it for several days, Start again and dilate it again with again with local anaesthetic. Then, oh, so because you thought you couldn't do it in one go. Yeah, that's right. But then you found you could do it in one go. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so whose idea was that? That was John Wickham's, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he he just thought, let's do something radical. Let's go, yeah. Because it sounds as if, from what you were saying, as if he was quite often coming up with radical ideas. Well, he he was asking questions, challenging. Um, and and uh, I think one of the things I found quite um, unusual, uh, very unusual, was that he, he treated um, everybody the same. So yeah. everybody was an equal partner mm -hmm. in the process of improving things. Um, so my background in industry, the historical sort of surgical approach to industry is to call the folk like me the trade. Um, and, and that's, you know... Uh, not necessarily a terribly complementary yeah. um, approach. John didn't take that approach. He he accepted everybody in, mm. in, in, in the process, the nursing staff, the technicians, yeah. everybody was an equal member. And um, so I was rather intrigued by that. So it's, it was very easy to respond to his requests or his ideas. And, and so, so he's very satisfying to work with. Was this a two-way process? I mean, would, you said he would ask you questions about why can't we have them smaller or, or zooms or whatever, w would you perhaps come up with an idea in, in, in the bath one night and then sort of suggest it to him? Well, I'd, go, I'd go back to my, um, my office and my little workshop and I'd make them shorter um, and, and, and take them back and try them with him. Oh, so you're um, actually making these things yourself? On occasions, yeah. Um, then, then things starting to get a bit too clever for me, so I had to have cleverer people than me do it but um initially a, a lot of these things were handmade and and mike i guess you were you were trying out new techniques and 
I mean, this is uncharted territory, I suppose. Well, that's right. But we were so lucky that patients would accept, accept what we said. We said, we'll try this method, which is only a small puncture. If it fails, you'll have the open operation as normal. And so they said, yes, go ahead. Nowadays, you can't do that. Of course, you've got to, to operate on animals or models first. So that must have made quite a difference to... Well, I suppose it wasn't a difference in that that's how it was at the time. But it must have allowed you to explore all kinds of approaches. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. And so this idea of, of having people there in the operating theatre on equal terms with different perspectives, it, I mean, it sounds pretty radical to me because when I was certainly... When I was doing my surgical training, I, it, it wasn't like that in operating theatres. It was very hierarchical. Um, and it was very clear who was the boss and, and, oh, and yes. who wasn't. And, um, and it was very clear that you really only spoke when you were spoken to and, and things. In many of the units I was in, not all of them. So this must have been pretty unusual even at the time, I imagine. Well, my initial experiences were in gastroenterology, developing colonoscopy and gastroscopy, duodenoscopy. And, in, and, and the folk doing that were all young and, and, and you know, excited and pushing the barriers back. Surgery was really quite prehistoric in, 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 in respect. As you said, you know, 40 years doing the same operation. That, that's unthinkable nowadays, and it yeah. was unthinkable once John Wickham came on the scene um, because he was always yeah. looking for better. I, the, the, I mean, the best example, I think, was that we developed percutaneous nephrolithotomy with him, very exciting technique. We were planning to make lots of money out of it, lots of new instruments, and then... Uh, the extracorporeal lithotriptors came along. And so we went from, you know, a six-inch incision to a one-inch, or if Mike was doing it, a half-inch incision, to no incision <laughs> oh, so this, uh, in this the was space the, of about five or six years. Th this was the thing where you shine shockwaves onto people from the outside and you don't make an incision at all. That's absolutely. And the patient walks in, walks out, um, goes back to work. And, and so... so John was, was sort of seeing these new possibilities and trying them out and then moving on and moving on all the time. Were, were there lots of other people at that time doing that or was he, was he pretty unusual, do you think? A lot of people in Germany were doing this as well but, uh, and we exchanged many views between Germany mm. and, and London. Mm. So, so you, you, you were, were you an independent person then, or were you working for, you were working for a company? Yes, a large corporation. In the and, and they, they what, allowed you to come up with all these ideas and try them out? They did. Um, and then um, as the company grew, we started involving engineers from Japan and Germany, and mm. it became a, a sort of, and, and, and in America, so it became a sort of collaborative international um, uh, working group that um, was working with people like John and, and Mike mm. um, in little pockets mm. around the world. It must have been a very interesting time. I remember one of these enactments in the Science Museum. I was talking to, to John, and he, he pulled out one of these instruments that I think he had in his basement. And he said, oh, yeah, no, no I've completely forgotten about this thing. Um, interesting one, this. He said, this one, this one won a prize, a European prize, for being the most innovative, um, innovative instrument for doing what it was supposed to do, which was grasping stones, I think, out of the gallbladder. Um, <laughs> And I said, oh, yeah, um, very good. Um, and, and what happened? Was it a success? And he said, oh, no, no, in three months' time, it was completely obsolete. <laughs> it had been swept away by, by new things. And so it must have been a really sort of, um, a, a sort of heady time, I imagine, with all these things sort of coming up. And, and, and well, we were certainly trying a lot of things and discarding them. Mm. Um, 
because the, the, I mean, uh, a lot of the technology was evolving because it started off with um, uh, rigid um, mm. lens systems and then it developed into fibre optic lens systems and then video. And mm. these capabilities were changing very rapidly. Mm. Um, so, you know, we were obsoleting products simply because new technology was, was taking place. Uh, well, I, I think there must have been... That sense of improvisation, I remember very clearly with one of the reenactments we did, talking to the two of you and John Wickham, and we were trying to put bits of stuff together, and it, we hadn't really done it before. For, you know, and, and I felt embarrassed because there was all this kit, and it didn't seem to quite work. And, and you know, you were taping things up with with stuff and, and sort of making things work. And I said, look, I'm really sorry about this because it, it, it all seems a bit sort of improvised. And you said, no, 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 that's exactly that's how it was. was. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I got this sense that, that, that not much had changed in a way, in that you were, you were doing things with what came to hand rather than maybe as things are done more now. Well, I think, I think the, the, the first percutaneous nephrolithotomies were done with a laparoscope, weren't they? Or cystoscope. Yeah. So a cystoscope is something for looking inside the bladder? Yes. Not meant for looking inside... Not, not for going <laughs> through the skin. It follows a natural or a natural path, follows the cystoscope. Um, so, so this was this was sort of thinking laterally? Yes. And, and using something well, that was he, already he, there for I mean, a different... Was, he was using what was available until we were able to respond with something customised or specifically developed. Um, John and, and the other pioneers had to use what, what was already in use. And, and were you doing something similar, Mike, with, the, with your radiological techniques? Because I, I guess you must have been sort of inventing some of those as you went along. Yes, we had meetings with radiologists in, in, in Europe and in the, throughout the, with the States as well. So it was Euro-radiology meetings in, in England and Europe and uh, in the States. And John Wickham started off a, an intrarenal society as well many years ago which met every year, people all around Europe. So this, this wasn't just stuff he was doing at the three Ps? No, no. He's he's this with, with you, it was a, it was a sort of world, worldwide. worldwide movement. Open really. discussion, yes. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't, wasn't just the Interrenal Society. He also started a society called the Society of Minimal, Minimally Invasive yes. Therapy, a SMIT. Um, and he brought together on equal terms, surgeons, nurses, um, the um, radiologists, engineers, industry. Uh, and, and that, again, was the first time I'd ever been asked to speak about technology at a medical meeting. Um, you know, the, everything was about the procedures rather than how they were achieved. So it was, so a pretty, it was a pretty very radical for the time. Experience. Yeah. Pretty, pretty radical for the yes. time. Yes, yeah. yeah. It, was a, it caused me a dilemma because he wanted me to talk about things to be quite candid, I didn't want to talk about how we... Oh, for commercial how, reasons. How we, yeah. Yes, how we achieve a certain <laughs> performance in yeah. a product. Uh, but again, John was very irreverent. He wanted more people to know yeah. um, how, how these things were done. So I was going to ask you both. I, I mentioned this, this idea of, of, of inviting people to reenact things from quite a long time ago. And um, to me, that was very interesting because of seeing people who, who'd done stuff that I, I just hadn't experienced coming together to, to reenact them uh, and then listening to the conversations that that prompted. But I wondered, from your point of view, you've, you've taken part in these simulations now several times, what, what it was like for you? Because it brought back memories, certainly it did, yes, because they, 
the questions we asked each other over the pretend body mm. was, was, was the same old questions and the same old arguments, which were <laughs> friendly arguments, but still arguments. But they were still there after all that time. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and my reaction was, looking back, how on earth did we get away with it? Um, <laughs> because we did some things that, uh, I, I mean, there are many stories that I would not want to recount about how we, how we got over problems or, um, you know, tackled procedures but I guess that would never be permitted nowadays that's probably always there in the background isn't it when when innovations are happening or maybe not always but yeah I don't I, I, I do think you know probably for good reason that you couldn't do anything like that nowadays yeah. it's far too regulated um, yeah. working environment yeah so, so with all the developments that are going on at the moment with with robot assisted surgery with with new forms of energy with new kinds of this or that do you, do you think it's a different landscape then, in terms of the the, the sort of I don't know the the creativity, the fecundity of ideas, or do you think it's always there but it's just slightly different? Oh, it's so much slower now because you have to re be regulated so carefully. Um, <laughs> Stuart was saying that we had some problems that we had to get over um, in various ways, but these were always really minor problems. What we said to the patient at the beginning was, if it fails, we can do an open operation. We never had to do that. Really? But you always could have done that. You could, you could go back exactly. to something you were, exactly. you were familiar with doing. And I think, I think one of the interesting things is now that, that, that being able to go back to something you're familiar with, namely open surgery, they couldn't do it is now. not there now because people are no longer can't do as comfortable with open surgery or, in fact, sometimes not comfortable with open surgery at all for Quite. those procedures. Quite. So it does make you think, doesn't it, about makes you wonder about what, which of these... Which of these procedures that, that go from being new to being normal to being old and then being discarded, what we may be losing as well as gaining in that process? I, I don't know. It's an open question. And actually, I think it's probably a good time for us to stop this conversation and, and see if there are questions that we might invite from the audience. So could, could we have the lights up, do you think?